0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for being here this morning. And uh, if you're joining us online, and I know we have several of you online here this morning on Facebook Live, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, Feel free to like or comment anything along the way. Uh, But I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at GPC, and again, honored to be with you all. Thank you for joining us. Um, You've caught us in um, part six seven of nine of this series that we're calling follow me and this is a story about um jesus invitation to life is what we're calling it and it's a it's a run through a number of stories that jesus tells parables that he tells as he's himself walking through the ancient near east basically walking through israel and the surrounding region now, this morning, before we jump right into what he has to say, I want to start it this way. There was a couple weeks ago that a story came across my newsfeed of a hiker who was lost in Zion National Park in Utah. And it drew my attention because we had been there as a family a few years ago, about four years ago, took a sabbatical, and we enjoyed our trip out to Zion. In fact, here's just one picture. It's not the greatest picture, but it's important because it'll, it'll tie into our story in a second. But here's where we were, one of our places in Zion National Park there. And you can see the The riverbed there going out into the the distance. And this hiker was 10 days into her missing journey, and then two days later, apparently, she was found, which is really unusual. Found alive. That's the unusual part, which is why it made news again. And as she began to tell her story, she said, The reason I was alive is because I figured out that I should stay by a riverbed. And she was on the North Fork of the Virgin River running through Zion National Park. At which point, then, that began to raise some questions for people who know what's going on, which is not me, but apparently, the Park Service people and others, because they know that even though the river looks great, looks clean enough and and vibrant and should bring life to you, the North Fork of the Virgin River is actually contaminated by bacteria, enough that you could be immobilized or dead after 10 or 12 days of drinking that water, which leads to a number of questions that they're still trying to figure out about what actually happened to her and the veracity of the story. But I bring that all up to say this, that that water and river like this, when the river (laughs) is contaminated, when the head, the river head is contaminated, it takes all of that bacteria downstream. And the river is designed to do this, to bring life, to bring greenery, to bring vegetation, to all of the places that it flows, but if it is broken, if it's contaminated, it's going to actually paralyze or kill. And the reason I bring all of this up is because I want to think about the topic we have to talk about today in light of the way that a river works. See, Jesus is going to talk to us about this idea of forgiveness, and I'm convinced that forgiveness, when it works right, we understand the headwater or the source of forgiveness, and then it flows downstream in each of our lives, flowing into your heart, into your soul, into our relationships, that as we interact with each other and the stream of forgiveness flows, it should bring life and vitality to you. Healing, clarity, love, and relationships. It should bring what a good river should bring. At the same time, at the same time, there are times when forgiveness gets contaminated at the source or the river head, if you will. And when that happens, sometimes you can't tell that the river is actually contaminated, but it kills, it paralyzes relationships. It pushes issues under the surface, it forces you to gloss over things, and you feel like a relationship that should be restored actually isn't because forgiveness didn't work right. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take us back to the source or the, the head of forgiveness and then talk about its implications downstream. You, I think, have experienced some of these downstream failures. I know I have. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a family who told me, you know what, Tim, our family has had some family turmoil over the past several years. We're going to go away um, to a cabin this weekend. And what we're planning to do is share communion together. And we think after that, everything will be all kind of put together again rushing forgiveness in a way that the hope is here's here's going to be the stream of forgiveness we're just going to sit together and have communion maybe after that then we can all have forgiven You ever experienced something like that? Like, let's just rush into forgiveness and hope it works. And the net result was for the people whose idea it was, they felt refreshed and energized. For the people who felt like they were never heard in their pain in the family, they felt like their pain was pushed further under the surface because there was no safe place to talk about what really is going on in that family. If you ever been condemned for not forgiving quickly enough, if you ever tried to forgive somebody and feel like, "Mm, I can't quite do it, you have experienced the river of forgiveness that isn't quite flowing from a good stream or from a good head source. So this morning, I want to talk about the kind of riverhead of forgiveness, and then I want to talk about how it goes downstream. And not just me, but I want to take you to what Jesus has to say about it. And I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. To start us this morning, we're going to be in two different texts, two different parts of the New Testament this morning. If you have a Bible, there's um, you can turn to Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible and the pew is our gift to you, by the way. Online, feel free to uh, jump in with your um, your U Version app or Bible Gateway or some other place or just the Bible next to you in your your place. But Luke chapter seven, it's in the right two thirds of your Bible, and and we kind of pick up in this story. We're going to pick up um, two characters in this story, okay? Two characters, and I want to talk about them because they're going to give us a picture of how we see God. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, here's our two characters, the Pharisee and the woman. Let's watch how they interact through this whole story. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. But Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. But tell me, teacher, he said. So Jesus tells a story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them, and look at the question that he asks, which of them will love him more? Jesus immediately ties love and forgiveness together, that love becomes the extension of forgiveness. Which of them will love him more. And verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Well, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. And then he makes a statement. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That, I would like to argue, is the headwater for the stream of forgiveness. That is the source where forgiveness needs to start. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus, verse 48 said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this even forgive sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'd like to suggest to you that our view of how we see God is the headwater, the source of forgiveness. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Let me put it this way. If I can break down this, these two characters in, in chart form, I think it'll help uh, you maybe see what I'm trying to say. You have two main characters, a Pharisee and a woman, in the story. The Pharisee, on the one hand, is very proper, but the woman is very improper. The text tells us that she's committed many sins, but the, the Pharisee certainly has not, not at least in the eyes of, of Luke. We go on, we see this that, that the Pharisee has power, but the, the woman is powerless in that society. He is in a position of strength, and she is in a position of weakness. The, the Pharisee is religious, but the woman is searching. The Pharisee himself is, is dignified, but she is desperate. The Pharisee is measured and the woman is abandoned. Look at these two vastly, vastly, vastly different realities. Two different characteristics, completely different characteristics of people, characters in the story. I want you to imagine for a minute. Imagine if you were the woman, the one on the right. Imagine if this is how you saw God. Imagine if you came to God saying, God, (laughs) my sin precedes me. Like, I'm coming to you and I recognize all of the failures that I have. I recognize that I have fallen, I have failed, I have not measured up. I recognize that I am not proper. I recognize that I am powerless to come before you, God. I recognize I'm searching for your affirmation. I'm searching for this approval. I am desperate to get it and I am abandoned to you. Can you imagine if that is the condition of your heart or soul and the God of the universe, the holy righteous God of the universe meets you in that space and says to you, you are forgiven. Can you imagine how much love you would have? Not only for your heavenly father, but how much love would flow downstream. Can you imagine that? Now, imagine the Pharisee. You haven't really done much wrong, to be honest, compared to the other people around you. I mean, you're pretty much a regular at church. You pray pretty often, you read the Bible often. You're in a position of power. You don't really need a lot from other people. You're kind of religious. Maybe you'd say you're, you're spiritual. You're dignified. I mean, certainly you don't <laughs> flail around in life and you, pe- people respect you and you're measured. You're definitely under control. You have your future plan. Things are kind of set up and there's just not a lot of need for, for you. See, when this is how I approach God, when this is how I see God, that I, I might need God only in the sense of it might be a nice add-on, like he might be a nice help for me to help me maintain what I'm already kind of doing on my own. I have not understood or felt the effect of the forgiveness that I have received from God because I'm, it's been nice, but it hasn't been to the level of this woman, which is why I would say, that this is the headwater or the source of forgiveness. That if forgiveness is sourced in how this woman sees God, can you imagine how deep and rich that stream of forgiveness will flow downstream to one another? When it is wrong and when it is off at the source, when we see God, almost like this Pharisee does, like, Jesus, I had you over for dinner, gave you a nice meal. I mean, I took care of you, hospitality, people respect me, kind of got to be kind of right in the middle of there, like just not really understanding and being aware of and embracing the depth of the reality that my sin precedes me and the wages of all of our sin is death and understanding the abandon and desperation, the powerlessness when we stand before a holy God. This, I would argue, is the headwater. But r- the river of forgiveness doesn't just stay at the source, it also flows downstream. And that's why I wanna take you to our second passage this morning where Jesus continues to talk about this flowing downstream. So I wanna invite you to turn backwards in your Bible from Luke over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21 is where I want to go next. Matthew chapter 18, it's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew 18, verse 21. This is a parable or a story that you may have heard before if you've been in church. And even if you haven't been in church, you may have heard this as well. It's a powerful story and one that helps us see how forgiveness flows downstream from that headwater source. Verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, because that's actually quite a bit. And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times or seven times 70, depending on your translation. Well, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus goes on, is, it's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, his servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and he let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his servant, fellow servant, fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and the man had him thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you, and here's the question, here's the downstream focus, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus makes a strong comment at the end in verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you take forgiveness downstream, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart, unless the forgiveness that you have embraced and seen, unless your relationship with God, unless you see and understand how much you've been forgiven and allow that to flow downstream, this is how you will be treated unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. That is a powerful statement, an incredibly powerful statement which raises this very, very important question because I've been using a word, but I haven't defined it yet. And I'm using this word and I have to ask the question, what in the world is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Each of you would have a different experience with it or even a different definition if I were to sit down and ask you, what is forgiveness? It's a great question. Whatever the answer to that question is, it has to be robust enough to handle the simple things and the really hard things of life. Let's say, for the for argument's sake, I don't know if you can see this, but this is a Hershey's milk chocolate bar. Let's say you're addicted to these things, or maybe you're addicted to candy. And I knew that. But I, without regard for your addiction or interest in your well-being, decided right here, right now, right in front of you, I'm going to open this thing up and kind of live tweet or comment on how delicious each bite of little Hershey's milk chocolate is to me. Let's say that would offend you. Now, all of a sudden, here's an opportunity For forgiveness. What exactly is forgiveness? When there is an offense, and I know this is very silly and very simple and very easy, but when there's an offense, when someone does something like that to you, what does it look like and what does it mean to forgive? And I want to suggest that there's two elements to forgiveness. There's the event that happened, the eating of the bar, but then there's the guilt or condemnation associated with it. There's the fact that I ate this thing, and then maybe I feel guilty not being aware that I've now caused you to stumble into eating 17 Hershey chocolate bars this afternoon. Or maybe there's condemnation you feel toward me for how could I do something like this in front of you or all of your friends? But there's the event, and then there's the feelings associated with it. One of our mistakes around forgiveness is we're going to, that we often take both the event and the feelings and wrap them into one, and sometimes we'll sweep both of those things under the rug. (laughs) Let's as quickly as we can forgive and forget and move on from it. And if that means I need to not think about it anymore, that's what that means. I want to encourage us in, in our area, at least, that sweeping under the rug and taking these two things and mashing them together and say, I need to forgive both the event and the feelings associated with it when we mash them together and say, we need to get rid of all of that. What we end up doing is we end up silencing the voice of the the hurt, the one who has been the victim. We end up silencing the victim because they can't talk about what actually happened to them in that event. And we end up actually enabling abusers. We end up enabling people who hurt others because we don't deal with the impact of the event. So here's the important thing about forgiveness. This word this word forgiveness means something in the Greek that doesn't show up in English. They're, it's just not the same words that we can pull out in English. And so here's what I want you to understand from this Greek word when Matthew is writing about forgiveness and when forgiveness is used throughout the New Testament, there is a nuance to that that we don't often get to see because of the English language. And here's the distinction of forgiveness. When I think about forgiveness in the New Testament word usage, here's what I would argue it means. That forgiveness is par- pardoning the guilt and not the event. Forgiveness is when you're going to say, you know what? You ate that Hershey bar in front of me. You knew I didn't value that. You knew that was going to hurt me. You did it anyway. I'm going to pardon you from the guilt that should come with that. But I'm not going to forget that you did that so that I will be careful not to put myself in a position to be hurt like that again. Two very different ways to see this. You don't mash them together. You can't pardon an event, but you can pardon the guilt that comes with it. And this is the nuance of forgiveness in the New Testament, that forgiveness is pardoning the guilt. When, When the New Testament says your sins are forgiven... It isn't saying that the event of when you have sinned is removed from the planet. You can't remove an event that happened in time and space. You can't pretend that that is gone, but you can pardon the guilt or condemnation that people feel associated with that event. That is the nuance here in Matthew and also in Luke, when the New Testament writers talk about forgiveness, it's a removal or a pardoning of the guilt. The same is true when you read that your sins are forgiven, it's that the guilt associated with your sin has been pardoned, but the event remains a reality. This is so important, especially when we think about victims of abuse. When you think about a victim of abuse, imagine this working out this way. If you've been abused, there's going to be guilt and condemnation that comes with that. This allows you to say, you know what, I'm not going to forget the abuse event. The event happened, but what I can do is choose to forgive the abuser while not putting myself in a position where I can be abused again. It allows culture, our society, our community to deal with abusive people or climates or environments, to talk about them as events, which we should do, to create health and safety for people, which we should do, not to sweep the event under the rug, which we should not do, but to allow us still to move forward by pardoning the guilt from that person, which we should do. It works this way in parenting as well. If you tell your kid no Hershey's milk chocolate bars ever again, or don't eat the cookie off the counter, or come home by 10 o'clock and they blow through that, and whenever a kid violates one of your home rules, as a parent, you do, you function often in the same way. You may change curfew, you may not allow them access to the kitchen anymore, you may tell them that they're, they've lost privileges, you will remember that the event needs correction and dealt with, but you can also assure your child that they are forgiven in the sense that any guilt or condemnation they feel has been removed by you, that they are free, they are free from guilt and shame when sin is confessed. This is the power of forgiveness. You are free. At the same time, you need to come home earlier tomorrow. You are free, but you don't get to walk into the kitchen when I'm making cookies right now. Not because I hate you, I have forgiven you. The event happened, but the guilt is pardoned. This is the nuance of forgiveness here in the New Testament, the nuance that I think is very important to understand, which leads me to this question that is this, what happens when we forgive? When forgiveness comes downstream and those river waters flow into the roots of our lives, into the souls of the people around us, into the lives of our friends and family and co-workers, when the the flow of forgiveness that comes from a good headwater flows into your life. What should happen? I would say there's three things should happen. First of all, healing should happen. That is that both the forgiver and the forgiven receive relational and personal healing. That in this space, when I choose to forgive you and you choose to forgive me, what you get and what I get is healing. (laughs) I get the confirmation that you're going to make a commitment to me if you forgive me. You're not going to think about this situation in the sense of my guilt anymore. You have freed me. You've given me a space for healing that I can understand that this will not stand in the way of our relationship anymore. This is a space of relational healing, and you get personal healing. This also brings clarity, I would say. Both the forgiven and the forgiver get clarity around their relationship. Here's what I mean by that. If you're in a If you're in a relationship, there are times after forgiveness when you renew the relationship. A marriage is a great example for this. If there's been an offense or a hurt, forgiveness is offered and there's a sweetness of confession and renewal of that relationship. If you're in an abusive relationship, forgiveness may be offered and then the relationship may end. There's either a renewal or kind of a Release of a relationship and either one is possible You can release a relationship and forgive somebody at the same time That's so important for us to understand you can forgive somebody and then consequently Release that relationship not to renew it again That is part of the nuance of forgiveness. You can pardon the guilt But not the event and so in an abusive relationship, especially I can forgive and then not renew that relationship but it's important Incredibly important that I have forgiven that guilt first part of the reason for that is my own healing your own healing clarity that I can understand the relationship and thirdly this that both experience a freedom both people the forgiven and the forgiver experience freedom from bitterness and from a guilty conscience one from bitterness if I'm holding something over you and you know this is true for you as well that I'm gonna end up becoming bitter because I'm gonna renew and recycle and revisit the thing that has offended me about you. I must choose to forgive so that I can remove that guilt and not settle into bitterness. And then what it does for you is it removes that guilty conscience where you can operate with great freedom, great freedom understanding that this is not gonna be something that's held over you. And so, two questions as we wrap all of this up here this morning. First question is, this has to do with the downstream flow, and that is this, is there anyone that I need to forgive this season? Is there anyone that I need to forgive this season? Now, with that being said, I might say this, I heard that there is a big political event happening on Tuesday this week. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I think there's something big happening on Tuesday. And I might ask the question, during this season, a politically charged situation, are there people you need to forgive? Are there people you need to be ready to forgive? People on the other side of the aisle who say things on social that you just can't quite stomach? Are there people in your own family who are acting and functioning in ways that you're like, oh, I can't stand this. I don't know why anyone would. And the tension rises. This is part of the downstream flow of forgiveness that we as people can bring life to one another even as we bump into each other with varying views of so many things, the pandemic, politics, pressures that you face, that I face. Is there anyone that you need to forgive or anyone you need to plan to forgive? And second question is this: I'm going to go back to the headwaters because the downstream flow of forgiveness is how we relate to one another. But when there's a problem, when I don't think I can forgive you or forgive me, I need to understand that I'm probably drinking contaminated water. That there's some bacteria in here that I should taste. If I can't stomach the idea of forgiveness, of pardoning the guilt, not the event, I need to go back to the headwater and say, where is this problem coming from? to which I would go back to our first story and ask this question. Through whose eyes am I seeing God right now? The forgiven woman or the religious Pharisee? I want you to encourage you to go back to the headwater if forgiveness is a struggle. Through whose eyes am I seeing God right now? My relationship with God. Through the forgiven woman or the Pharisee? From the the woman's perspective perspective, absolutely powerless before God, (laughs) absolutely desperate and dependent upon him, abandoned to him, unmeasured, someone who has no other hope than that God come and meet her in her abandon and in her failure and in her sin and in her ugliness, that God would meet her there. And if God does, Jesus questioned to Simon the Pharisee, whose home he is in, he says, who do you think, who do you think will love more? In other words, who do you think downstream their flow of forgiveness will touch people more because of what they have seen and felt in this relationship with me. And so in the space you're in right now, I want to encourage you to come back to the headwater of forgiveness for you. How do you see God right now? How do you see your relationship with him? Are we a little too tight? Are we a little too formal? Are we a little too measured? Are we a little too reliant on ourselves for our reputation and our dignity? that we forget the desperation of our human condition, that we forget how much we've been forgiven. Because when we remember that and live in that space, that headwater is a beautiful, clear, life-giving flow of forgiveness that goes downstream, reaching the roots of each other's souls, that we can provide healing, clarity, and freedom to one another in this community and in our very own church here as well. So, I don't know how your stream of forgiveness is flowing, but I want to encourage you, revisit the headwater and follow it downstream. Who can you forgive, and how do you see God right now? All right. With that being said, I'm looking forward to next week. We're going to talk about another story of Jesus, and uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation. All right. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning together. grateful for those gathered, those listening online, and the lives that you have given to us to lead, I pray that you would give us courage to revisit the headwater, to revisit the source of the flow of our life right now. Revisit whether we're too measured, we're too under control, whether we're too dependent on our own reputations for uh, dignity. Remind us, tell us the story again. Of the power of our own sin and the greater power of your forgiveness to us this is what christ has offered to us on the cross and so i pray that you would warm our hearts with that headwater that you would soothe us with that. that for those around us who who hurt us who say things sometimes unknowingly that we find terribly offensive that you would help that stream of forgiveness to flow freely to all those around us, that we can pardon guilt and be wise in the events that caused it. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time we could share together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we wrap up here this morning, I want to...